Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by author Lori Cox-Hahn, who's going to talk to us about her new book from the University Press of Kansas, Advising Nixon, the White House Memos of Patrick J. Buchanan. Pat Buchanan, as he's become known, is a fixture in American politics and in the news media, but he was for quite a stretch of time an advisor to President Nixon. Lori's had the opportunity to study a lot of his memos to Nixon that are available in the Nixon Library, and she's going to talk about her research there. I'm also joined today by Susan LaBelle, who's a new host at the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast, and Susan's going to ask some questions of Lori as well. First, I'd like to welcome Lori Cox-Hahn to our program and to ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hi, Lori. Hi, Lily. Hi, Susan. Thanks for having me on today. Well, this book has been something that I had wanted to do for a very long time. Back when I was in graduate school at the University of Southern California and finishing up my dissertation, which was on White House communication strategies, I had the chance to do some research in presidential library archives for the first time, uh, a trip to the Kennedy Library, and then also looking at the Nixon documents that were at the time housed in College Park, Maryland. And so that started my very long commitment to doing research at presidential libraries, which I have now, I'm proud to say that I have conducted research at all 13. So everyone from Hoover through George W. Bush. And over the years, and it's now been more than 20 years since I did my initial research, I was always focused on looking at presidential communication strategies that has remained my my primary area of interest and expertise. And having gone through uh, you know, advisors and, and press secretary and speechwriter files in all 13 of those libraries. I always came back to how fascinating Pat Buchanan's memos were during the Nixon administration. And so several years ago, I thought, you know, it might be a great idea to do a book just looking at all of the advice that he gave to Nixon during such a consequential time in our nation's history. So I finally had the opportunity to start working on this just a few years ago. Taking my job at Chapman University in 2005 certainly helped that because the Nixon Library is just 10 miles down the road from my office. But then it also um, was helped when the Nixon documents finally came out to California and were housed in the, the, the Nixon Library when it came under the auspices of NARA. So that's basically where the project got its start, and it took a long time to get to the point where I had the time and a little bit of research assistance from a terrific student of mine at Chapman a few years ago. Finally made it through all the documents and uh, got University Press of Kansas interested in the project. And, um, you know, it was great to, I mean, it was really great to see it published just two months ago because this had been such a long time coming with the development of this project. 
And so I just wanted to ask you first, before we go into the substance of the book, to talk a little bit about our understanding of presidential libraries, because you do discuss this and the peculiarity of the Nixon Library in particular. Um, And can you define what NARA, N-A-R-A, stands for and, and how we understand these documents that as you say, you've been to all of the presidential libraries. For listeners who might not be as familiar as you are with them, can you just tell us a little bit about them and, and how they work? Sure. So NARA is the National Archives and Records Administration. So this is the, the federal government entity that oversees uh, all of these historical documents in places other than also the presidential libraries. But there are 13 official NARA libraries, and that means that these are depository libraries that hold all of the president's papers, various artifacts, and each library is uh, also a library and a museum. The museum part is run by the foundation for the president, and then the library part is overseen by the federal government. And so anyone can go do research in any of these libraries. Some have um, a little bit stricter rules about needing to schedule an appointment. The Nixon Library is terrific because, I mean, the the archivists there are great, and you really don't even have to have an appointment to show up. Of course, they recommend that you tell them ahead of time what it is you're looking for. So, you know, high school students can go, you know, graduate students can go, senior scholars like myself can go, and it's really equal access to going through these documents if, if you have a legitimate interest to do so. And um, what is interesting about the Nixon Library is that when Nixon left office in 1974, the documents, uh, you know, who owned the documents was in dispute for many, many years with a lot of uh, court cases and uh, fights between the federal government and the Nixon family. And eventually that was resolved. So around 2006, 2007, the documents finally started to be sent from the National Archives in College Park, Maryland, out to the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda. Prior to the documents arriving, the Nixon Library was not under the NARA umbrella. It was, um, it held the pre and post presidential papers of Nixon. Uh, it's also his birthplace. So the house he was he was born in and raised in is there on, on the property. So it finally became a NARA library, which was pretty exciting for scholars in Southern California to finally have, um, you know, another presidential library so close by. And the other thing about the Nixon Library that makes it unique is that um, unlike the contemporary presidents at the time, so Lyndon Johnson prior, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter after, there is still a lot that is not opened and processed in the Nixon Library. So, you know, you go to the LBJ Library in, in Austin and there really isn't too much that isn't open or isn't available. But for the Nixon Library, and, and actually I just spoke with an archivist a few weeks ago when I took my uh, presidency class to visit, told me that, you know, there's still about 40, 50 percent as far as what has been processed and what has been opened. So there are so many, many more documents coming still from the Nixon Library that scholars just haven't had the chance to access. And so it's pretty exciting, like I said, to live this close and and to be able to get over there, you know, whenever I can to to do some research and, and files that are just now being opened. Lori, in your book, you you mentioned that you visited all 13 presidential libraries, but the Buchanan memos drew you in in a very particular way that you felt you wanted to return to them. Can you tell us a little bit about what is it that's unique about these Buchanan memos or what's not unique and how they're similar to the type that other presidential advisors have sent over the years? Sure. Um, one of the things that really uh, struck me the very first time I read any of his memos is 
that he is so frank and just so direct in what he is saying that he really doesn't pull any punches. And if you know anything about Pat Buchanan's entire career, whether it's as a journalist or a presidential candidate, I mean, there's no doubt what he is thinking at any particular time. And I think that's somewhat unique because I you, you get the sense that sometimes when you're reading memos that go directly to a president from certain advisors, they, they're they a little hesitant to be that direct, that forthcoming with with the president, with the boss. And you don't get that in, in Buchanan's memos. The way he speaks is the, exactly the way he writes these memos. Um, you know, there are excerpts of these memos that could easily be a scathing op-ed in, in a newspaper today. And, and these are memos from, you know, 1969, 1970. And he's very consistent throughout his career and, and how he views things and how he speaks about things. And I just found that to be somewhat unique and quite frankly, a little bit refreshing when you're taking uh, a scholarly look at the advice that presidents are given. So, um, you know, I think that was one of the, the reasons that I really wanted to do this book. I mean, you could do this kind of a book about a variety of advisors for any administration over the years, but I'm not sure it would be quite as interesting as, as some of the Buchanan memos. Lori, one of the things that really interested me about the book was how you show Pat Buchanan as the architect of Nixon's public strategy from the 1966 campaign to his last days in office in 1974, and, and, and how the memos provide a unique insight into the political strategies and deliberation of the Nixon presidency. Can, can you elaborate on how it is that these memos shaped the political environment for decades, especially the creation of a Republican majority and the evolution of a particular conservatism associated with Nixon? Sure. Buchanan really was the representative in the Nixon White House to the the growing conservative movement. And he had a unique perspective that um, always came back to reminding Nixon that it wasn't just the folks in the center, but the people on the right whose support that he needed to be able to affect to effectively govern. And I think one of the strengths of, of Buchanan's role in the Nixon's White House wasn't just that he was a very effective speechwriter or that he really understood the media environment, but that he really understood overall political strategy. That you know everything he was doing on the communication side was very very intricately tied into the overall um, political strategy in terms of preparing for the 1970 midterm elections and the and Nixon's eventual you know very big victory in 1972 and winning re-election and so I think it's it's rare that you see an advisor in a White House who ha- brings that kind of depth and breadth to the president's inner circle. And I wanted to follow up on that one because it was really interesting to me the way that that you learned from Buchanan's um, memos and from his understanding, his role in the White House, which was kind of this like everything. He did a bit of everything and he was allowed to kind of serve Nixon in all kinds of different ways. He was the sort of ambassador with this broad portfolio. Can you talk a little bit about how his memos discussed that role? Yeah, he 
he wrote a few memos and certainly one right after Nixon's reelection in 1972 about what his his role was in the Nixon White House. And, you know, there were several memos that I, I found particularly useful in putting together this book. But that one where he, he writes to Nixon saying, you know, basically a summary of this is everything I've done in the first term and this is where I see myself going in the second term. And he saw himself really as more of a, you know, to put it in baseball analogy, utility player, somebody who could come in and play just about any position, no matter what the circumstance called for. And he really wanted to move more into the political strategy, a little less, you know, I would say on the communication strategy and really, you know, maintain that that role that he had in his connection to the you know conservative thinkers at the time and also really being the person who represented Richard Nixon to the catholic community in the united states one of the things i found striking about your analysis in the book lori was how you said that buchanan wrote these surprisingly frank memos those are your words that said on paper what quote, protocol demanded not be said to Nixon's face. And you give examples, uh, you know, there's one where Buchanan calls Nixon a humorless SOB. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how exceptional this is, this level of frankness between an advisor and his president. Um, you know, is Pat Buchanan something special? Or is is this something that you've seen in your other research on presidents and their advisors? It's not that this doesn't exist in other you know, memos, other files at other presidential libraries. I think that you know, every every person who works for a president, particularly if you're within the inner circle, you have a unique relationship with a very unique individual who was elected president of the United States. And I think that you know, Buchanan felt comfortable being this honest and this frank with Nixon, at least most of the time, you know, in, in my communications with him in the last few years, I did ask him about that. And he told me that, that, and I put this in the book that, you know, he looks back on some of that. And he went through a lot of his memos when he wrote his most recent book on his White House years. And, you know, it, it seemed like he, he, he seemed a little <laughs> shocked at how candid he actually was in going back and reviewing it. But that style of writing for him is consistent throughout his career, whether you're looking at his memos uh, or, you know, all of the, the op-ed columns and, you know, his work on cable television and his presidential campaign. I mean, he is consistent from start to finish in the kind of messaging, not only the content, but the tone and the kind of words that he uses um, throughout his entire career. And I, th- I think that makes him unique. And and I wanted to ask you about the memos in this regard also because it's one of the things you comment on in the book that Buchanan also wrote memos to others, um particularly Halderman and Ehrlichman, um that he also knew would get to Nixon, but he didn't write them specifically to Nixon. Can you talk a little bit about what he was doing in sending the memos in that direction, even though he could have potentially sent them directly to the president? Right. Well, everything that is a memo to the president, uh, he, I mean, he knew it was all going through Haldeman. Haldeman was the gatekeeper as chief of staff. And you know, he kind of knew the inner circle of who was seeing his memos. And so sometimes there was a way to get a message to the president that didn't necessarily go directly to the president or writing something directly to the president 
might have been also a, a message back to Haldeman on on some issue. I mean, he and Haldeman did not always agree on things, and that that's apparent in the memos. So a lot of the memos are really interesting because some are just the original copy that that Pat sent. Some have you know the comments, the annotated ones, whether it's comments back from president or from Haldeman. And that's where you can really see a lot of the dynamic when when you can access those kinds of memos in a presidential library with comments from the other top advisors. That's where you really get a sense of what was going on inside the White House. And I, I wanted to ask you another. Oh, sorry, Lily. I, I just wanted to follow up on that because as a presidency scholar yourself, Lori, and, and somebody who's looked at the dynamics inside White Houses, over your, you know, your career and what you teach your students, you take them to the libraries themselves. What is that dynamic that you saw through reading these memos? Could you talk a little bit about how the inside of the Nixon White House worked through the eyes of Pat Buchanan? Well, you know, Nixon is often misunderstood, I think, by people who haven't really taken a close look at his presidency. And and my take on it is that he was just a very pragmatic politician and very knowledgeable about all all topics really related to governing you know domestic policy foreign policy also you know how government works i mean this is someone who served in the house and the senate he was vice president and then president um and buchanan's role then was really to represent what was happening among you know, within the Republican Party, but the growing modern conservative movement into the 1960s and, and as it continued to grow into the 1970s. Haldeman, on the other hand, was much more pragmatic, much more about uh, what Nixon needed to do to win. Um, Buchanan was very focused on that too, but he also took the view that, you know, this this new majority that they wanted to create in 1972 had to include the... Um, you know, the the growing support among conservatives in this country. And I think that was where he and Haldeman sometimes differed. It's not that they didn't want the same outcome of Nixon being successful, but they saw it, I think, in very different terms. I wanted to ask you about another Haldeman memo from uh, December of 1968. It's a long memo in which Buchanan lays out what really seems much more like a political science literature review of presidential decision-making, you know, sort of categorizing each president for Nixon. uh, How did they set up their cabinet and what were the consequences? And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that memo and how you saw it fitting in with um, was it prescient? Is, did Nixon listen to what the advice Buchanan was giving him as to how to set up his cabinet so he would hear voices? Right. I think that's one of the most fascinating memos in the entire book, quite frankly, because the first time I read it, I, I had the sense that it was almost as if um, you know, Pat had some premonition about what might be coming because he's telling Haldeman this is the way I think you should, you know, just my opinion, this is the way I think you should set up the White House. This is the uh, structure that you should have in terms of who gets in to see the president, who doesn't. Um, And it's almost like it's a warning, be very careful about the environment that you're creating, because you need to make sure that voices who disagree with some of these decisions still get heard and are still valued. And 
it, you know, it's easy to, with hindsight, to, to look at it and say, wow, he's kind of describing what happened uh, and what allowed Watergate to bring down the Nixon presidency. And obviously he, he couldn't see that in the future, but it, it does give you kind of that eerie feeling of, wow, he's kind of in a roundabout way and, and in a very, you know, it's all what it is, almost like a scholarly lit review there, kind of, you know, warning Haldeman, you, you might want to be aware of these things and, and make sure that that this is the way you run the White House. And, you know, I don't know, since the memo was written directly to Haldeman, I don't know if the president saw it at that point, president-elect, or how involved, you know, Nixon was in in that part of the transition beyond just selecting, you know, the, all of the, the key people. And so, you know, usually the chief of staff is the person who is setting up the, you know, how, how paper and memos get to the president and just the entire process. So, but I, I think it, it is really a telling memo. And certainly anybody who wants to understand transitions or any any aspect of just the way the Nixon White House was running, that that is a really important memo to look at. And and so from that memo, you also move into the, the subsequent period um, in the pre-Watergate period and then the Watergate period. And you note that um, Buchanan was able to stay out of Watergate. Um, and this is clear from some of the memos that he was writing. Can you talk about how he actually did stay out of Watergate and and what the memos indicated with regard to how he kind of understood maybe he needed to stand away from that. Yeah, I mean he does he does discuss this in his his most recent book, The White House um the, the White House Wars is I believe the title. And and he did mention it a little bit to me in, in our conversations about how he was basically initially asked to oversee the the plumbers unit and really kind of look into the leaks. And he he wrote about this. He talks, and I've heard him talk about this also, that he basically said he knew that wasn't something that he wanted to be involved in. And so it's interesting how he ends up being one of the closest advisors to Nixon who does not get drawn into that aspect of Watergate. I mean, certainly he, he testifies before the Senate committee um, and presents all of his memos. And, you know, he, it's it people can judge for themselves right or wrong what was going on in terms of the strategizing uh, and how to deal with Democratic candidates in 1972. Uh, but, you know, there there's no evidence that there was any criminal wrongdoing on, on Pat's part. And that's, that, that, like I said, it's pretty amazing to think about how connected he was to everyone in the White House, but yet still maintained enough of a distance from that aspect. Lori, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about how Buchanan urged Nixon to re-understand his electorate and to understand a silent majority, a new majority, and the role that Catholics would play in that strategy and the role that Jews and Blacks would not play. Could, could you elaborate a little bit more on that? And I think it's fascinating. Sure. Yeah, it is fascinating because a lot of his memos, and and believe me, he he wrote a lot of really long, really detailed memos, and it 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 was really interesting to me how much understanding he had of voting behavior, voting patterns. I mean, it the data that is presented in some of these memos. You know, it kind of it speaks to a political scientist, right? Because that's that's what we do if we're studying this aspect of American government. And he really understood 
that it, while Nixon might have wanted to increase his support among black voters, among Jewish voters, that would explain to him that these are, you know, increases at the margins. You're only going to increase the, the vote total a little bit, and that doesn't really help. But here is this whole group of voters that were more really aligned with the New Deal coalition for a couple of decades. And that would be, you know, working class white voters, and particularly, you know, Italian Americans, um, you know, Polish Americans, people that had, you know, not really been Republican voters per se loyally up to that point. But this was a way that he saw to really grow the, the you know, that, that middle and to the right uh, on issues that were really starting to merge in the late 60s, and early 70s, is particularly Nixon's law and order emphasis and being part of that silent majority. And so, you know, and, and Catholic voters were a very prominent part of, of his strategy for how Nixon could really, you know, build that new majority. And just as a follow-up, as I read through the memos, when he talks about Jews, when he talks about his words, Negroes. On the one hand, it seems like very hard-headed analysis of the terrain. On the other hand, there are elements of, of prejudice and stereotyping. And I was wondering if you could speak generally to the memos and the extent to which it is spoken about as strategic. We don't need Blacks because they don't have enough votes, or whether it is whether some of the comments and understanding of black voters are based on prejudice. Well, I think coming at it the way that I did was to try to be as as objective as possible when when you're looking at these memos and always reminding myself that you know there I I would find a few things that you know kind of would raise your eyebrows now in this political environment. And then I would remind myself, okay, but this was 1970, this was 1971. And so very, very different standard, I guess. Um, but I, th- I found that most of it really was just an analysis of these are voters that we can get. These are voters that maybe we don't need to worry about. Um, not to say that there wasn't any stereotyping in there. There always is. Um, you know, I don't care if it's left, right, or center. There, If you're analyzing voter behavior or, or anything going on in the political environment, you know, we all we all bring our own you know views and stereotypes and life experiences into it. But I I, I found that it was from more of a social science standpoint a, a pretty impressive understanding of some of these concepts that you know I'm not sure that everyone working in politics really has that kind of knowledge. And he wasn't a political scientist, right? I think you note that he's, no. he has very little background. Right. I mean, he was a journalist. He has a master's degree from Columbia, Columbia Journalism School. And so, you know, it's not that he doesn't have the kind of training that 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 we do as political scientists or social scientists, but very astute in terms of understanding that aspect of it. And um, from reading all of his memos and, and some of his other work, it, he, he was paying attention to the kind of analysis that was going on, not necessarily from, you know, earlier generations of within our discipline, but certainly journalists who were, um, you know, more in touch with the numbers involved, whether you're talking about, you know, voter turnout, voting behavior, or even public opinion numbers. And so that's something that you don't always see when you're looking at some of the memos from from various administrations. I wanted to ask you, um, Lori, a research question, because you note in the book, as you're reading the memos, that you had a couple of occasions where you actually 
corresponded with and and chatted with Buchanan. Can you talk about how that fits into the way that you were sort of working on not only your research and reading these memos, but also in putting pulling the book together? Well, it was particularly helpful simply because there, um, you know, there were a few. Well, not all of his memos are open and accessible at the the Nixon Library right now. And the two most prominent years that are available are 1971 and 1972. You might, you know, you could easily say, well, if if you only have two years of the full set, those are the two years that you need. And and so he did provide a little bit of perspective on, you know, the other times that that are not as easily accessible. And and I will say that, you know, he's he's incredibly gracious and um, was was helpful in answering any questions. And actually, uh, when I first got in touch with him, it was when he was uh, working on his book on the White House years. So I actually shared a few documents with him that I had that he I, I guess did not have in his personal files. So um, I was I was happy to do that. And, you know, I, I when you're dealing with someone who is, um, you know, a historic figure and, and someone who worked certainly for an extremely consequential president at an extremely consequential time, you, you never know, you know, if they really want to take the time to deal with uh, an academic. But but he was, like I said, I I, and I, I say this about him often. He was just incredibly gracious and and answered any question I had, and especially because my questions weren't you know these broad sweeping questions, but very specific about the process of writing memos. And he was happy to to give me that kind of detail, and that was something I definitely appreciated. Lori, do you think there's going to be serious change in how uh, presidential scholars deal with the inner workings of the White House and the digital age? Are are presidents working to capture those texts and emails that are not on paper uh, in the way you were able to go through boxes? I mean, do you, do you see this as a possible problem or as an opportunity for future scholarship? I think both. I mean, I think that we're starting to see how this is changing what we considered to be archival research. I mean, even there really will not be an Obama library like we're used to because they're going to digitize everything. And the, the, right now, unless there's a change made and it doesn't seem like there will be, all of the Obama documents are going to be housed in a warehouse, you know, a NARA facility back in, in the D.C. area. So you will be able to go to the Obama Presidential Center and there will be a museum and all sorts of events like happen at at other libraries, but there will not be documents that that scholars can sit down and immerse themselves in. And I think that I'm very opposed to that. I think it's problematic. Um, I can say that from having done some initial research with the Clinton Library. I've been to the Clinton Library and and actually, you know, use the documents that are open. And then they have a tremendous number of documents that have already been digitized and are available online. But searching those documents is kind of a chaotic process compared to sitting down with a file that's been processed by an archivist and it's in some kind of order, um, whether it's organized by topic or whether it's usually it's, it's, you know, chronological. And I think you're going to miss out on, on that perspective by relying on a search engine. And, um, you know, as far as I know that there are ways to, to, to go back and see all of Donald Trump's tweets at this point. And, and I believe the Obama tweets are, are, catalog somewhere also. But I, I think that, you know, the way we do, we being presidency scholars, the way we do this kind of research is changing. And so it's, it, 
Um, I'm, I'm old school about this and I, I, you know, I still like to walk out of a presidential library with photocopies of, of the documents that I want to take home with me. Uh, so, I, I mean, it might sound like a distinction without a difference, but it really is, is going to change the way we're able to do research. And I wanted to ask you, given that we're talking about research, what it is that you're working on now that you finished this book on the Buchanan memos. Um, I believe you are are continuing along the same lines, perhaps in the Nixon administration. Right. Well, my my next research project, which I am I've already started, uh, presented a an initial, very early paper of it at the most recent APSA conference, is basically looking at how the some of the key advisors within the Nixon White House really um, kind of foreshadowed what would happen with the Donald Trump campaign and presidency. And so, in the review process with University Press of Kansas for this book, I had uh, one particularly helpful review that said, "Hey, I think you might have another book here." And it was something that had been bouncing around in my mind as I was working on the Buchanan memos because I kept coming across things that, you know, strategies or, or messaging techniques that I would just say, "Wow, that really sounds like what's going on with Trump right now." And so this reviewer kind of helped me shape that idea, and and my editor uh, at Kansas, David Con is also very excited about this. So um, I want to take a look beyond just Buchanan, although he's an important architect here, but to look at what was going on in terms of conservative uh, populist nationalist strategizing within the Nixon White House and see how that kind of links up several decades later to what Trump was able to do and, and, you know, how that framed his messaging. And so that's where I'm at right now. Um, and I'm, I'm continuing to be in touch with Pat about, you know, accessing some of his memos and some of the documents that he has that the Nixon library does not have. And also, you know, I'm, I'm going to start in earnest very soon looking at some of the other advisors and their documents that are available at the Nixon library. So when you finish that book, will you come on the New Books Network again and talk to me about it, please? Of course. <laughs> Thank you, Lori. Um, I've been talking, Susan LaBelle and I have been talking with Lori Cox Hahn about her excellent new book, Advising Nixon, The White House Memos of Patrick J. Buchanan. This is published in 2019 by the University Press of Kansas. And I assume one can get it at the University Press of Kansas's website. Any brick and mortar stores you know of that are carrying it? Uh, not that I know of, but if anyone out there knows, please let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps the Nixon Library will be carrying it in their bookstore. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today, Lori. Thanks, Lily. Thanks, Susan. <laughs> 